Today we're going to be diving back into the book of Jonah, and uh, so feel free to turn there. And it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, it's good to uh, continue this morning our elder-led sermon series, A New Look in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, as I said, it's good to be with you all, um, especially after, after a, a week of being loved on by our small group, and I'm sure um, being the recipient of much of your prayers uh, this week. Um, some of you may not know, those of you who are online and, uh, and whatnot, uh, my wife broke her leg. Um, she's uh, going to be getting a six to eight inch plate um, installed um, to um, kind of do what her bone's supposed to do and keep her standing. But that's going to be happening next week. And our, our nine-year-old, uh, you know, it was concerning for her. She had to have this question answered is what's going to happen if you go through a metal detector. That's her biggest concern in this situation. <laughs> but we tried to explain to her that, you know, sometimes it, it causes an issue, but a lot of times it doesn't. And uh, I told her that, you know, I've got a, I've got a plate in my hand when I broke, broke a bone, and uh, I go through metal detectors just fine. Um, but that's an interesting story with my hand. Uh, it's a story that my wife likes to tell um, a lot. But a while back, and then this is not a very, uh, not a very shining moment for me, um, but a while back, my wife and I were uh, having a discussion, and uh, the discussion got a little heated, and um, I began telling her very emphatically and passionately something that Thomas Edison said, and, and, and you won't believe this, but do you know what she said to me? I don't care about Thomas Edison. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I walked away. I walked away. And in our hallway, there's, there was a bookshelf, and, and I had so much, so much passion and concern that I, I stretched out, and I, and I hit this bookcase, and it was a punch that could be heard around the world. And you know what my wife heard? Uh-oh. I happened to hit it right where the bracing shelf was and my hand buckled and I shattered uh, the bone in my hand and had to get a plate. But my, my misplaced passion <laughs> led, to, led to my anger, it led to my frustration, it led to me reaching out and hitting a bookcase and, and causing pain. Um, and that can be the case a lot, is it not, that when we have... Uh, misplaced passion uh, that we, we, we get angry, misplaced passion about who God is, misplaced passion about what the truth is, misplaced passion about who we're supposed to be and, and what we're supposed to care about. And to combat that, we look again to Jonah because Jonah's telling us who God is. And so when we have a proper understanding, a proper knowledge of who God is, what God cares about, it helps us to to be better aligned with what he's got going on. And so we return to Jonah this week in chapter two. And so Jonah chapter two, and the Lord, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. 
All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. So if you remember from last week, we had the sailors um, kind of drifting off into the calm sea with a, with a sunny skyline as that last wave kind of pushed them off. But then we've got Jonah in the other direction, still in the torrent and the fury of the storm waffling in the waves as they crashed around him. Now when we read chapter one, it doesn't really seem to paint that type of picture but that's because of our incessant need as Westerners to to have everything in chronological order. See, chapter two gives us a little bit of different glimpse and and so much so that it's kind of like whenever whenever you're watching a movie, right? And and, and the story's progressing along and and then there's a color change, right? It goes into a grayscale or some sort of sapia and you've got children playing. We know at that moment, okay, all right, we've gone back in, 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 in time to these characters. If they don't do that color change, we often get confused. Well, what's going on here? Who are these kids? It's like we have to start the movie all over again, learning new characters and learning what's going on. But that's what's going on here in chapter two. There's a, there's a color change. We're, we're shifting into a grayscale. And so Jonah's telling his story. Chapter one, we've got the the sailors, what their experience was, what they were dealing with, what they were thinking about, uh, how they were responding to Jonah and the storm and how they were responding to God and and how God responded to them. But in chapter two, we get Jonah's perspective. We get Jonah's poetic telling of what's going on. And Jonah does it masterfully. But you know, he's, it says that he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't know about you, but I think that's a long time to be stuck in a fish. There's a, there's a lot of time for contemplation, a lot of time for prayer, a lot of time for, for thinking about all your life choices that have led up to this moment, <laughs> right? But that's what he's doing, and he's, he's thinking about all these things. And, and as I said, he, he does it masterfully, and he, 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 does, he does a prayer in the fish, and he also, he has enough time that he, he decides to write some poetry, and that's what we have. And maybe he doesn't actually physically write this while he's inside the fish, but, but you know, post-rescue, looking back, looking back on what he was thinking, what he was feeling, what his heart was in that moment, he, he, he crafts this, this poem, this psalm, to communicate his story, and, and he does it masterfully. Because it, here, as we read, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. 
Each one of those, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting the Psalms. And so he's, he's retelling of his, his circumstance of, of where he was at and what he was thinking. Psalm 3, 4, I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 121, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Lamentations 3.55, I call on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. And Psalm 42.7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. And so these, these scriptures are coming to his mind as he's in this fish and he's, and, and he's remembering and he writes about it and he writes about it poetically, thinking back that this is what was saturating his mind being able to see how, how his life and, and his experience and, and what he's got going on is matching up with things that he's read and heard from the scriptures. And so he's going over this. And the first thing he tells us about is his despair. A called out to the Lord out of my distress. And so what is Jonah's distress? He says, for you cast me into the deep, This is when he's thrown from the ship. You cast me out into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. He lands in the water, and there's nothing else around him. All he has is water, and all he can see is water, and your waves and your billows passed over me. And so he's thrashing, and these waves are crashing against him, and it's tossing him to and fro, and he's struggling. He's struggling to stay above the waters and to stay afloat, until finally they pass over him and he says, and then I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look to your holy temple. I can picture Joan at this moment as he's, he's lost the strength to continue to fight. He's lost the strength to continue to stay afloat and he begins to sink underwater. And as he's drifting off into the depth of the sea and he's going into the place that only the dead go, that he's looking up and he's remembering I wish I was back at the temple. I wish I was back in God's presence. And his despair in this moment as he's, he's realizing the full weight of, of the situation that I'll never see the temple again. And so even though he's, he, he knows that, he looks off and, and he looks up and he thinks on it. And this is his despair. This is his distress. But it says that he called out in, back in, in verse two, called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. He answered me. It's because God's engulfing presence follows in the wake of Jonah's fleeing. And so the first thing we learn here in Jonah's poem is that our God is a God who sees. Our God is a God who sees. It doesn't matter how far Jonah goes. It doesn't matter how deep Jonah goes or, or where he gets to or how, how, how much off he is, God still sees him. So he looks to his temple. He looks back and he thinks back and he's realizing that even in all of this, God, God is there and God sees him because he heard, because God heard, because God saw Now, I can't speak to Jonah's experience of the waters, but I do know what it feels like to despair of life, to feel unseen and unheard. There are memories that are etched in my mind of of pounding the dirt 
and calling out in this, into the sky, begging to be taken out of this life that only offers loneliness. But I also know what it feels like to experience the presence of God's mercy washing over me, enveloping me into an eternal hope of belonging. And so I too, I can, I can say I call out and you answer. I have no one to look to but you alone. Doesn't matter how far we go. Doesn't matter how far we have run. It doesn't matter how, how distant we feel we are. God sees. Our God is a God who sees. But as we look further into Jonah's experience, we also learn that our God is a God who finds. Our God is a God who finds. If you look back into verse 5, it says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Here, Jonah's moving from the despair into the finality of his situation. The roots of the mountains. Trees have roots, right? Where are they at? They're at the bottom. My wife's family has um, some, some land down at Painta Lake. Um, they've had it for, I think, a couple generations. And uh, she grew up there, her summers, spending there, swimming, boating, uh, fishing, doing all that. They, they, they brought in some sand, and they made kind of like a little beach area. It's, 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 it's nice for Painta Lake. It's nice. But it's fun to take the kids. Kids love to swim there. And, and we've done the same with ours, and they've gone. And uh, the, the first part of the season, as you, as you get in the water and you kind of get through the sandy part, um, when you, you get out of that, there's, you start getting a lot of stuff that starts wrapping around your toes. And you can kind of pull it up and you kind of shuck it off. And, you know, as the season, you're out there more, it kind of dissipates and it doesn't really grow back much. Um, but that's that, all that's there and it's growing at the bottom. And so Jonah's portrayal here of these weeds, they're wrapped around his head, right? And he's at, the, he's at the root of the mountain. So what Jonah is getting us to picture here is he's laying, he's laying flat on the bottom of the sea. And this is where Jonah's at. He says, as, my, the, as his, his, he was beginning to faint in, in verse 7, and so I can picture it when he says that it closed over me. I can, I can feel and sense that here's Jonah laying lifeless at the bottom of the sea. His life is ebbing away from him. And Jonah's dying. This is what's happening. This is what Jonah's telling us, is that he's dying. But it's in this moment it's in this moment that even in the darkest moment that he's on the brink of death that God shows up and that God finds him and says that you brought me out of the pit. It says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That's a repeated phrase again, your holy temple. And so Jonah's cluing us in on, on something that's going on here. 
He's wanting us to pay attention to that phrase because it's communicating something to us about who God is, about what God does. And so we look at that phrase and we can see that he, he said at first, the context is a little bit different. He said first that I, you know, I look to your holy temple. The second one, my prayers come to your holy temple. And so we can get confused somewhat that we start to think some of this has depended upon Jonah's actions, right? And even if, uh, uh, you know, a quick reading through Jonah, skipping over chapter two sometimes is easy because it's a lot of weird stuff he's saying in there. Let's just boop, boop, <laughs> right? Let's get to the good stuff. Let's keep the story progressing, Right, so, so he, God calls him, he runs away, God sends a storm and stops him, a fish eats him, it takes him where he's supposed to go, and then he preaches to Nineveh, do what God tells you to do, otherwise you get eaten by a fish. Right, it seems like that's the case, right? But Jonah, Jonah's here and Jonah prays, and then the fish spits him out. And so, okay, we gotta pray, right? We gotta, we gotta do this and we gotta do that. But what Jonah's cluing us in on here is this, this, even this poem, even his story, it's not about Jonah. He's not telling us to reveal something to us about him, about how he got better, about how he changed, or about he saw things differently. He's cluing us in onto who God is and what is God about. And so that phrase, your holy temple, different context but the words are the same and more importantly the word your your holy temple i cried out jonah says but you heard me and you brought my life up from the pit the actions the hero the saving it is god who's doing the work here and that's what jonah's cluing us on there you brought my life up from the pit. I said last week that um, there's only three verses that speak of the fish. I guess technically that's wrong. There's a fourth. You brought my life up from the pit. That's the fish. The fish isn't a means by which God continues his will and progresses the story forward. The fish isn't a means by which Jonah had to endure some, some type of suffering in order to, to learn about God. That's not what the fish is for. The fish is a means by which God salvages Jonah. The fish is his rescuer. Jonah's laying on the bottom of the sea and he's dying. This is Jonah's experience. This is what's going on with him. And then he gets eaten by a fish. But the fish is a means of salvation. The fish carries him on and, and he's able, I don't know, maybe somehow the fish bit onto him. It expunged the water out of his lungs and he's breathing in some sort of cavity. I don't know. God does the miracle. God does the saving. God does the amazing stuff. But Jonah is alive in this fish. The fish saved Jonah. Maybe there is another hero, the fish. <laughs> Way to go, fish. I don't know how you be like a fish, but hey, there it is. But it's kind of unexpected, isn't it? 
It's unexpected to have a fish be the one that saves. It's unexpected. But that's what God does. God does the unexpected. It's unexpected that that the God of the universe would clothe himself in humanity and, and dive to the depths of where we are and live like us. And not, not just live like us, but do it better than we can, better than we do. Be the type of human that we're supposed to be. It's unexpected then that he too, even though he, he does the plan perfectly, that he, he then still takes on our curse. He still takes on the responsibility of, of, of our actions and he puts that on himself. That's unexpected. It's unexpected that, that our God would care that much. No sign will be given to you except the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The fish is the means of saving Jonah, and Jesus is the means of saving us. So even in the deepest, even in the darkest despair, God finds us. God finds us. Because God's engulfing presence follows in the wake of Jonah's fleeing. So this poem, it points out that our God is a God who sees. Our God is a God who finds. And furthermore, our God is a God who saves. So we turn back and look to verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now I'm going to be honest with you. It's in this point of Jonah's psalm here, this poem, um, that I really got confused. And I had no idea what Jonah was talking about here. It seemed to take a left turn. You know, here's Jonah dying at the bottom of the sea, and he's saved by a fish. And then he starts talking about vain idols. Okay. You bet. Go, Jonah, go. So, this morning... Uh, I've done a lot of study, I've done a lot of reading, and there's some scholarly debate and disagreements about what, uh, what some of this means, and so this morning we're just gonna, we're gonna walk through it together, and I'm gonna share you some of my thoughts, and, uh, and we'll go from there, right? So uh, verse eight, mainly this disagreement uh, revolves around that second part. Uh, the, the, they forsake their hope of steadfast love, um, and so the, the disagreement is whose love, whose steadfast love, whose loyal love is being forsaken? Is it uh, the, the idol worshipers? Are they, will they then uh, forsake giving love out? Or is it love that's being received from, from God? Is that's what's being forsaken? And so with, uh, 
With things like this, when there are times where people who are more educated than me, who have uh, studied this more, who uh, probably, uh, probably are, are smarter than I am, uh, then they disagree about it, then I'm pretty much deciding that I'm not going to try to come to a conclusion on it. And uh, if I can, uh, I'll look for a way that both apply, and then we all win, right? And so that's, that's kind of what my approach was in, in, in looking at this and going to it. Um, the thing that I did find interesting is that word steadfast love In the ESV, that's like another, it seems to be like another trigger phrase, that that's another, um, you know, another uh, repetition, right? So in chapter 4, verse 2, I believe, it says that uh, you are, um, yeah, let's just read it. It's right here, right? I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. There it is. And so there's that phrase. It seems to be that that's a phrase, right? So we key in on that phrase. What I come to read and in and, and the study find out is though the one in chapter two, it's actually a slightly different word. It gives it a different nuance. It allows for this kind of ambiguity that they're now you know, discussing you know, endless. You know, I, I want you to picture that there's these people just pining away at, at trying to figure this verse out. Um. But, but so that's, that's, the, that's the debate, right? So there they are, what it is, uh, two different things, right? And so that word allows for that ambiguity. And I think the ESV kind of does the same thing the way it translates it. It lets it be somewhat ambiguous. Um, so with that word, I thought, all right, so that's not the key to figuring this out. What's the key to figuring this out? What can we know? What can we learn? Um, what can we, as we, as a church, as we read God's word and we allow God to speak to us, what can we pick up and, and count on this being uh, truth, being conveyed of, of who God is? And so I had decided to, instead of looking at the word steadfast love, I'll back up and we'll look at idols. Those who uh, pay regard to vain idols. So what is an idol? Well, an idol in Jonah's mind and in the minds of his readers is a humanly crafted uh, material that is used to worship a deity. So they would, uh, a lot of times, people would have um, idols of their family gods. Uh, We talked about the polytheistic world last time. They would carry them with them. They would set up little shrines in their home, um, and they would would say prayers and have uh, have little rituals right there. And this is what they would do. And, then, and the more that they took care of them, the more honor and uh, devotion they showed to their deity. You go into uh, the temple worship of, of different, different religions back then, different belief systems, and they would have idols, uh, giant statues of people that would be uh, covered in um, precious metals, and they would polish these idols. They would take care of them. They would keep them clean. Uh, they would incorporate them into, into their different worship rituals. And so the more devotion that they showed to these idols, the more that they hoped to gain favor from, from the, their God that they, that they worshiped, the God that they served. And so here's the, th- here's the trick, though. Here's the thing. It's not just a polytheistic worldview problem idols are also a a jewish problem idols are also a christian problem 
because we can take humanly crafted material items that are used in worship for divine purposes and we can ascribe more effort and, and, and value into that material than we do God himself. And so what I started to pick up on here, though, is that Jonah, in his reference to the holy temple, that he's looking back, and even right before this verse in the end of seven, when he mentions your holy temple, he goes into discussing idol worship. He's been looking to flee from the presence of God, Right? And he looks back and he remembers, I wish I was back at the temple where God's presence was. But through this ordeal, through God saving him, through being in the very depths of the sea in the bottom where only the dead go, and God finds him there, God sees him and God finds him and God saves him, Jonah begins to realize that God's presence isn't tied to the temple. That God's presence isn't tied to just when we meet here on Sunday morning. God's presence isn't tied to when we, when we perform just some kind of prayer or some kind of ritual. He doesn't come and leave and come and leave and come and leave. God's presence is here. God's presence is now. God is I am. And so it's own, Jonah's own heart his own bent towards idol worship with using the temple as being the only means by which he can relate and commune with God, he realizes something differently. And so it's in that realization that we then look back to the following stanza of that poem. That those who forsake their hope of steadfast love. So when Jonah realizes that he, if he only looks to and hopes for something that's material to save him, something that's temporal to save him, he'll never receive the kind of love that he's hoping for. And he's communicating that to us by showing us who God is. That if we look to the things that are in this world that seem to satiate our need in the present moment, but they don't move past beyond that, those things will always fail us. Those things will always let us down. And when we are down in the bottom and the darkest place in our life, and we're hoping for those things to show up and to do something for us, they never will. But God does. Jonah says, God does. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who saves. He is the one who does it. He is the one that brings the hope. So yeah, Jonah does learn something here and that this perspective of God's presence is more than just temporal, right? But God, Jonah's communicating to us and he's telling us the story so that we pick up on more and more about who God is. And salvation belongs to the Lord. So even after hearing Jonah's story, if we continue to place our trust in something that's temporal, we'll be walking away from the God who sees, the God who finds, and the God who saves. And this is Jonah's poem. This is what Jonah's communicating. 
that our God is more, our God is bigger. It doesn't matter where we are or how far we've gone, God sees us. It doesn't matter how how deep we have sunk and how dark and scary things in life have gotten, God can find us. And it doesn't matter how close to death we are, how close to destruction our life is, our God is a God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Pray with me. Gracious Father, our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers and rests upon and in and through us, we too, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for how you've showed up in our lives, each individually and in our lives, corporately as a church, and what you're doing here and Harvest Decatur. The unexpected. God, I thank you for bringing a... a, a a pastor from Arthur, Illinois to help plant a church in Decatur. It was unexpected. Thank you for continuing to make this church a place of adoration and worship to you. Thank you for continuing to to make this place a, a, a gathering for people to to read, to study, to learn from your word. God, thank you for making this place full of people who care and love one another. Who look for ways to show it. God, thank you for showing up in the times of darkness in our lives where things didn't make sense. Where things didn't seem to to go the way that we thought they would. Where the mistakes we've made seemed to be final and irrevocable but you show up and the engulfing presence of your mercy follows in the wake of our fleeing as well. Thank you for being a God who sees us, that you care for us so much so that you sent your son to die on a cross and to come back to life to fix our brokenness 
to remove our sin and to take away our propensity towards autonomy. Thank you for being a God who finds us, who continues to, to search for us, to look for us. That even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You came and you made a way. You did the work. You did the heavy lifting. And we are thankful for that, Lord. Thank you for being a God who saves. My God, thank you for restoring my broken heart. Thank you for saving my brothers and sisters here. Thank you that you're not done saving us. My Lord, my God, thank you for being a God who will come again. And your final saving will rescue us from all that is broken, all that is wrong, all that causes pain and turmoil, and you will make all things right. And we long for the day where we get to worship in your presence your full and embracing presence. But until then, Lord, until you come again, we worship you now. And in your name we pray, Lord Jesus.